Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope you're enjoying the summer wherever you are in the world. Probably wherever you are in the world, it's very hot. It is here in Ireland. It's still absolutely roasting and worryingly so. Um, because, well, I feel like this could be the start of something. No, I don't want to alarm people or anything like that. But here's two things that are happening that don't usually happen. One, it's really hot in Ireland, and it has been for the best part of two months now. And two, there's no fizzy water anywhere. You can't get bottles of fizzy water. I mean, you can if you if you want to buy Pellegrino, but your bog-standard six-pack of fizzy water that you get from your local supermarket, the brand, is it's gone. None of it. It's all gone. Now, I know a couple of weeks ago they spoke about there being a CO2 shortage, and this could be uh, tied into that. It would make sense that it's tied into that. But I do wonder if in the future, in the not-too-distant future, when those of us who have survived or those of you who have survived, because I'm pretty sure my survival skills are completely uh, non-existent. I'm pretty much a guy who likes creature comforts and all that kind of stuff. So if you told me to go out into the woods and forage and kill things and, and all that, I'm, I'm not going to do it very well. I'll be one of the first to go. But uh, those that will survive will, will look back at this summer of 2018 and they'll go, we should have seen, we should have seen it coming. It was hot in Ireland and then there was no fizzy water. Those were the signs that society as we know it is, is coming to an end. So if you have some fizzy water... If you're an Irish person in particular and you've got fizzy water, you could make a killing. You could make an absolute killing. Set up a website. I've got some fizzywater.ie and you could just make an absolute fortune from all the people who really like fizzy sparkling water. People who have their own soda stream machines, well, you're well on top of things. Well done to you. Anyway, we've got a podcast today. It might be a little bit of a short one because uh, you know, it's still preseason. There's not a huge amount going on, although I have just more or less finished watching Arsenal play Atletico Madrid in the International Champions Cup, that most prestigious of preseason trophies. It's uh, it's great to see uh, the new signings when they arrive at Arsenal. They say, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Can't wait to get started. I want to be a success. I want to win trophies. Most of all, I want to win the International Champions Cup in the summer. Our chances of doing that, sadly, are a bit slim because we lost 
uh, on penalties to Atletico Madrid. It finished 1-1. We, uh, we took four penalties, missed three of them. Uh, the only one we scored was a fairly cheeky panenka from Ainsley Maitland-Niles, but Mkhitaryan missed, Joe Willock missed, and Eddie Nketiah missed. Atletico Madrid's penalties weren't much better either, but they scored more than we did. I think they scored 3-1. to one. But uh, interesting enough kind of a game. We started with some of the young players. Emile Smith-Rowe, who was referred to throughout the day on Premier Sports as Ernie Smith Rowe. Ernie, where on earth did he get Ernie from? And nobody in the control room or nobody uh, who was watching Twitter or anything like that was able to correct him and say, actually, it's, it's Emil, not Ernie. Maybe, however, it is the start of a new trend where we just, we just replace the name of a player with a kind of old-fashioned sounding name. So all of our new signings, we could rebrand them before they get well-known. So it could be Barton Lino. He's our new goalkeeper. And uh, Stanley Papastatopoulos. Uh, what could we do? Mandrake Guendouzi. Lancelot Torreira. I'm kind of liking this, actually. But that was just a minor annoyance uh, in the in the commentary of the game. I thought it was interesting enough. We played a kind of 4-2-3-1 formation. Emile Smith-Rowe scored an absolutely belting goal. You can see why he is a very highly rated young talent. I thought it was quite funny. It was at Keith Andrews, the former Republic of Ireland player who was doing the co-commentary. He was getting names wrong all over the place as well. I think he called Gwen Doozy Doozy for most of the day, but that's beside the point. But he scores the goal. Emile Smith-Rowe scores a great goal and uh, fair play to him. It's absolutely fantastic. And Keith Andrews says, Wow, what a way to announce yourself into world football. You're thinking world world football. Yeah, I don't know that there are too many people watching this game, Keith. Really, I don't think it's uh, don't think it's quite up there with the World Cup or the European Championships or the Premier League or the FA Cup or the League Cup or some lads in the park having a kick around and filming it on a GoPro, watching it around in Trev's after. It's not quite that. Strange, strange. Obviously, they're told to uh, to hype up the International Champions Cup beyond the excitement that we all naturally share for that competition. But uh, a load of changes in the second half took a bit of the flow out of the game. We changed our formation. We played with three at the back and two wing backs. And there wasn't a great deal going on between those changes, which was uh, after about an hour, and the uh, the final whistle. So uh, interesting, though. Uh, it just shows that perhaps there is a bit more tactical flexibility to Unai Emery. He is going to try out new formations or change his formation in games, or perhaps uh, depending on the opponents that we play. So uh, we'll we'll learn a bit more. Over the coming days and weeks, of course, we've got another game on Saturday. We play PSG out in Singapore as well before we come to Dublin next week and then Stockholm next weekend. So by the end of next weekend, we'll have a uh, not a clear idea or a total idea of what he's doing, but a better idea of what he's doing and how the players are, are responding to all that. But still, nice to see us back on the pitch without any pressure, really, until the, uh, the important games kick off on the 12th of August. Of course, we open our campaign against uh, Manchester. 
Manchester City. There's a couple of other little bits and pieces going on. There's been the Ivan Gazidis stuff this week. Um, I'm going to talk to Tim Stillman about that now in a minute. Aaron Ramsey, speaking about his new contract, everyone was very encouraged when they said, yes, the club uh, is ta- are talking to my agent, negotiations are ongoing, but we haven't reached any agreement yet. And then he gave another interview where he spoke perhaps about seeing out the last 12 months of his contract. Uh, and I think that leaves the club in a position where they have to make a decision. So I'm not sure it's as cut and dried as uh, as people might like to think with Aaron Ramsey. I'm a bit pessimistic about this one. I'd like to be uh, more optimistic. I'd like him to stay. I'd like him to sign a new deal. You know, we're not far away from the close of the transfer window as well. Let's not forget that. It's, it's not going until the end of August like normal. So yeah, it does put a little bit of pressure on if you have to replace somebody or if uh, that plays into your decision-making as to what you're going to do with a guy who's in the last 12 months of his contract. But look, we'll talk about that right now uh, and a bit more with Tim Stillman. Hi, Tim. Hello there. Let's talk first very quickly about the game, the 1-1 draw with Atletico Madrid. You know, it's pre-season. It's nice to see the football. Did anything in particular jump out at you from uh, from what you saw? Not, not really. I, I think kind of um, the, the way that the way it looks like Arsenal are going to attack, looking quite interesting. He, you know, he's he started a Bamiyang on the left now in mm. both of the you know both the preseason games that we've actually been able to see, um, albeit we don't really know what he did behind closed doors. But that that kind of suggests he's shaping up to do that. Um, there, there was there was a really good video um, a few weeks ago on a uh, Tifo football. They they do some really good kind of short tactical videos, and they were talking a bit about how Emery's teams like to attack and how the wide forwards are used and how, you know, they like to come inside and create overloads and things like that. And actually what was quite interesting, I thought this time, was that it was Lacazette that was coming out and it was kind of the wide forwards that were that were pushing on, pushing forward a little bit. So, um, you know, m- maybe that's something to look for. Yeah. But until um, guys like Xhaka, Torreira, Ozil come back, um, it's it's kind of difficult to to see how it all fits in, but it it looks like he's he's pretty wedded to that four three three, and for the time being, I, I think the kind of talking point really is um, perhaps is using Abamyang as a left sided forward. Is that the best use of him? How is that going to work alongside Lacazette? Um, I, I think there's a debate to be had there, um, albeit. A, perfectly prepared to give it a chance and the two yeah. the two seem to hit it off certainly off the pitch as much as anything and, and actually that that partnership could be quite interesting do you feel perhaps in the absence of a, a recognized wide player and that's something that people have spoken about at length this summer the the need maybe to go out and bring in a winger is he mm. maybe looking at that as a solution either because we can't find the player that we want or we can't afford the player that we want or mm. or he just feels like he can get what he wants from a wide player from Aubameyang? Now, I know he scored a lot of goals uh, last season ostensibly playing in that position, but he, he arrived in the box and that was, that was what got him the goals. But mm. if you're looking for creativity from out wide, I don't think he's the guy who yeah. gives you that. No, no, I don't think so either. And, and I think... Um, I, I do think we we lack um, a good kind of wide forward. I think Mkhitaryan is really the only one, unless you know you you go down to guys like Iwobi and Nelson, who I think are squad options. Mkhitaryan is really the only one who looks like he's a comfortable wide forward. But um, again, he hasn't started either of uh, these two preseason friendlies either, which which you know maybe says something about the thinking there. I, I think basically Arsenal have got to try and get. 
Um, they've probably got like six attacking players for four or five places. And, and it's, it's very interesting to see how he's going to balance that. Because I think if you've got Aubameyang and Lacazette, then having Ozil, you know, as the other wide forward, having that creative presence behind them mm. um, could, could be quite a good balance. But then you've got Ramsey. So really what you're left with is kind of three finishers and only one creator um, and I'm not sure that that's a great balance. I, I actually quite like the idea of Mkhitaryan in there just because I think he can do a bit of both. He can create and he can score. And I think that maybe he balances that front line a mm. little bit better. Um, but it doesn't look like that's what he's going to do. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite an interesting one, um, actually. I, I tend to think that in an ideal world, he'd like to bring in. Um, a wide forward and and maybe I I don't think it's going to happen because there's probably not enough time but I mean maybe you know you set one of those attackers whether it's Ramsey whether you make a big decision on someone like Lacazette um, and you use that money to bring in like a really really good wide forward um, I, I don't see him doing that at this stage so yeah I, I, it does feel a little bit make do men but like I said it's not it's it's not exactly gone badly so far, yeah. um, so I, I think I think it'll be interesting to see how this develops, particularly when when Ozil is available to see how this all fits in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, some interesting to see a couple of the uh, the younger players that have come through. Matteo Guendouzi did all right, I think. Looked handy enough on the yeah. ball, but maybe not quite as aware as he might have been uh, uh, what was going on around him at other times. But I, I suppose that's a bit. Um, a case of getting up to speed with a step up in in level uh, in a way and step up in opposition when you're playing somebody like Atletico Madrid, you don't get any uh, you don't get any time to to dwell on the ball. Uh, Emil yeah. Smith Rowe, a, a young guy who people have very high hopes for, um, a fantastic goal. But this seems to happen every summer, doesn't it? And I'm not yeah. by any way writing off Emil Smith Rowe. Please don't <laughs> give me a hard time about this. I'm just saying that every summer. It seems to happen that one young player catches the eye in preseason and we go, yeah. yes, I love this guy. This guy is it. And then a couple of summers later, the Jeff is leaving and everyone's, no, yeah. poor Jeff. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know it, it is just a feature of the summer. He is just 17, very highly rated and everything else. So we, mm. we, we can enjoy what he did, but not necessarily heap the pressure on him. Yeah, absolutely. And he's um, he's one of the players. I, I saw a couple of the under-18s games um, in the Cup. So I saw, I think, Colchester, Blackpool. I mean, those, those teams were a division or two below, so difficult to make any conclusions. And unfortunately, he wasn't really fit for the final against Chelsea. Um, so he had a kind of limited impact in a big game like that. But, yeah. it, I mean, he was certainly the standout in, in the kind of games I saw. Um, and, and obviously, it's, it's very difficult to keep a boss. Uh, sorry, keep a lid on uh, the hype around youngsters, um, particularly when you know preseason games are tele- televised and there's kind of pressure on content and making big conclusions about um, fairly meaningless games. But that said, preseason is um, it's, it's a really really important time for some of the younger players. It's really quite often it's their chance to establish themselves um, that they don't really get uh, during the season because it's a bit busier because it's so competitive and they're not going to get the same chances. But, you know, if you're if you're a young player that's come through the academy, that's one of your aims, you know, coming into the summer. It's right, we got a couple of weeks till we go on tour. I've got to train really, really hard and impress the manager and get on that tour 
so that he gets another kind of week or two looking at me, perhaps playing me in some games. And and that's like um, that, that's a really crucial stage uh, for a young player's development. And guys like Inketia, Nelson, Maitland Niles, they kind of they did that last year. You know, they got themselves in the tour squad. They made a bit of an impression, and you know, it didn't mean they all became first team superstars overnight. But they kind of they got their foot in the door through doing that. And um, and and Emil Smith Rowe, you know, he's he's been in the under 18s. He's not even been in the under 23s yet. Yeah. Um, and and it may be that he kind of skips that level or spends very little time at that level. But I mean, really, I think certainly early in the season, his aspiration would be. You know, get on the bench in the League Cup, in the Europa League games, go to some of those Europa League away games, get some of that experience, but then like really consolidate in the under 23s. Mm. So, you know, as much as you don't want to build hype, you know, for, for the actual individuals themselves, for the young players, it's really, really important to make an impression in pre-season. Well, look, they've got more chances because, you know, the squad is coming together. And even when Jack and yep. Steiner and Torreira come in, they're not going to play straight away. You know, we're, we might be looking at those guys missing the first couple of games of the season simply because of how late they're coming back from from the World Cup. So there is a chance to impress a bit more um, on this tour and uh, in the games in Dublin and, and Stockholm. So one of the other things that went down this week was, um, I guess, Aaron Ramsey talking about his contract um, mm. which is the first we've heard from him. Uh, he said talks are ongoing with the club. Um, but in an interview later, he was a bit less um, inclined to, to talk about his future. What did he say mm. exactly? Um, he said, I'm a player who always gives 100% regardless of what's going on. I will absolutely uh, try to give everything to achieve something special this season regardless we have yeah. to come to an agreement with what we want, so maybe something might happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he's talking about the honour of being captain of the club as well, which, of course, it would be a great honour. But, you mm. know, that's, it's, it's as non-committal as you can get, really, isn't it? How, what's your gut feeling yeah. on Ramsey? I, I think it's, it sounds like um, real brinkmanship. There's, there's still no real links away from the club, but it's interesting that he brought up, and I'm sure he was advised to bring this up, you know, saying quite matter-of-factly that he'll, you know, he'll be staying this season, whether he signs or not. Yeah. And, um, you know, Arsenal would probably take a different view on that, and they'd probably think, mm, maybe not. Um, so, you know, it felt a little bit like a power play, him kind of... He's, he's obviously not quite agitating away for a move. We haven't quite reached that stage. But at the same time, you know, he he holds the whip hand here because Arsenal need to get this sorted one way or another before August the 9th. And that's that's approaching very, very quickly. And if he's not going to sign, that means brokering a sale and then replacing him. Um, But I think he and well, more to the point, his advisors know the longer that they string this out, the more desperate Arsenal get and the more likely from their point of view that Arsenal say, well, Okay, then here's you know here's everything you've asked for um, as as a kind of hardcore negotiating tactic. It's what Özil did, um, and like I said a few weeks ago, maybe that's set a bit of a precedent um, for Arsenal players. You know, they're looking at Özil and saying, well, and and Walcott before him. You know, oh, they yeah. got into their last six months and they basically got everything they asked for because Arsenal had no choice. Um, so to me, it sounds like a really kind of big game of brinkmanship and Ramsey 
you can't lose in mm. this scenario because if it gets to August the 9th and um, and there's no resolution, he knows that he's basically coming towards Bosman territory. So he he will basically get what he wants what, what know, if, financially, footballistically, either way. What, um, what for if, Arsenal, it's, it's, yeah. it's very different. What if the end game for Aaron Ramsey is to see out his contract mm. and to become available on a free at age, what a, I mean, he's 27 now, so... Yeah, he'd be 28. He'd be 28 next summer, absolutely going into, you know, the, the top years of his career. He, uh, he could well be looking at that and thinking, you know, if I get to next June... Well, he doesn't even have to get to June. All he's got to do is get to January. And in yeah. January, he can sign a pre-contract agreement with any club in Europe, in continental Europe, not in the, not in the Premier League, mm. although... We, it would we probably kn- happen that way anyway. Yeah, we know, you know <laughs> yeah. that that's, that's the way it would work. So that, that's another layer for Arsenal to deal with, isn't it? You know, is it a case Definitely. that he's holding us over a barrel just to get more money? Or is it a case that he actually is quite content to see out the final year of his career and then take the Bosman, take the pay rise, enjoy some football abroad for a few years, which is something he's always spoken about. So that, that, that causes yeah. more difficulty. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure he and his advisors will be using that as leverage. Um, but I'm, I'm still, I'm slight, the, the kind of crumb that I'm holding on to is that there's no talk of a move away. So it suggests he's not entirely unhappy. Mm. That suggests to me that they're just trying to juice Arsenal for a bigger offer, which, you know, it remains to be seen whether Arsenal will do that. Um, but it, it it suggests to me he's not entirely unhappy. Mm. It's just maybe he's he's looking at maximising the offer from Arsenal. And that puts the ball in Arsenal's court because that gives them the decision to make. At what point do they say, no, we've got you know two weeks left to the end of the transfer window. We've got to sort this. Um, we're going to put you up for sale and we're going to use the proceeds. So, and, and, you know, it doesn't sound like he'd be mortified by that conclusion either because, yeah. again he'll just get what he's asking for somewhere else. So really, the end result is that Aaron Ramsey is, and, and again, his advisors, they're probably one way or another going to get what they want in terms yeah. of the financial offer. It's just whether that comes from Arsenal, whether they sit out for another year, or whether Arsenal are the ones that push the button and say, no, we're walking away at this point, you're up for sale, yeah. and uh, thanks and see you later. So that's... You know, Ramsey, it's a bit like, you know, the house never loses. Yeah. Ramsey is the house in yeah. this situation. He's the casino. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, given that this is a time-sensitive situation that might require the best and brightest minds at this football club to get together <laughs> and to work in harmony to make the right decision for the for the club and for the team and for our chances of success, how much of a distraction is it that our chief executive... Uh, appears to be involved now in a transfer saga. I mean, I never <laughs> fucking thought I'd see the day. You know, we've been through it with, I don't know how many players. You know, summer after summer, is he going to go? Is he going to stay? Is he going to go? Is is this going to happen? And all of a sudden, hang on, this is a catalyst for fucking change, all right? Where where, where the chief executive is is hung up in this thing with, with AC Milan. Now, Arsenal yeah. released a statement to address these issues during the week. Um, 
And, and the statement said, we're aware of the speculation surrounding our chief executive, Ivan Gazidis. We know he receives many offers from organizations inside and outside the game as he's a hugely respected figure. Like, uh, who, like who's chasing him from outside football? Anyway, that's a different thing. <laughs> anyway, he says, he has never accepted any of these opportunities and has never spoken about them publicly. He has always been fully committed to taking Arsenal forward and is currently working hard in Singapore with our new head coach, Unai Emery, as we prepare for the new season. That mm. was not a particularly helpful statement. Um, my, no. my reading on this, I'm, I'm going to ask you this, and you know, people give me a hard time because I'm not necessarily that favorably disposed to Ivan Gazidis, and I find it hard to, to, to hide that. Right? And I accept that fully, and people can give me a hard time about it if they want, but I'm, you know, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. But my, my, my feeling is that they must have spoken to Ivan Gazidis about this situation. They must yep. have, like, flat out asked him, what's going on? Is there anything yep. to this story? And whatever answer they got from him was not f sufficient for them to come out and say, this story is nonsense. Ivan Gazidis is going nowhere. So what's your reading on, mm. on the whole thing? So before the statement came out, I, w I wasn't sure how much truth there was in the stories, although there was a, a lot of smoke. Mm. Um, now I'm absolutely convinced he's going. Um, that statement was um, suspiciously lacking in the future tense. <laughs> um, and I, I think you're right, they could have had some words from Gazidis himself. Do, do you remember, I think it was summer 2010, when the Fabregas Barcelona rumours were again, but going around and they were really really intense and it, it was quite clear Fabregas wanted to go yeah um but we but for that summer we shut it down and, and there was a statement that just said this is absolutely not happening he's not for sale and they kind of wheeled Fabregas out himself and he kind of said yeah I'm staying um I'm really sorry that this has caused so much furore but I'm definitely staying and that's the end of it I mean that's what you do when you're closing something down this to me looks yeah. like positioning. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're releasing a statement that isn't a denial um, in corporate speak, you're basically confirming it, um, to my mind. Gazidis has ha appeared publicly a few times. You know, there was the launch of the Legends um, game that I was at uh, beginning of last week. You know, he's been out in Singapore doing lots of activity. There's lots of journalists out there. Yeah. It, it would have been it would have been very, very, you know, it's not like um, that Robin Van Persie statement where <laughs> he's in America and Robin Van Persie says, oh, he's on holiday in America. Um, you know, this this isn't like that. He's not in he's not hiding in a cave somewhere. He's with the club. He's doing commercial activity. Yeah, it, it would be very, very easy to put an end to this. And they absolutely haven't, which suggests to me that, yeah, there's absolutely something in this that he's probably going to go. Um, to Milan, um, which, which which is quite unsettling. Now, it, it, this is not, it's not that I give much of a shit about Ivan Gazidis or think that he's brilliant, but I think this is quite unwelcome, uh, particularly just because of the timing as much as anything. He's led this massive executive restructure. We've got a new manager for the first time in 22 years. You know, this is like a proper revolution that has taken place, you know, the catalyst for change. Um, I suppose it's better that this is happening at the end of that process, but I think really you want the guy who's led that to be in situ for at least a year um, to see it through, particularly when you're settling in a new manager who, who 
shoes, you know, got to learn the league, got to learn the language and things like that. And, mm. you know, because Edith has conferred quite a lot of, if not responsibility, publicity on this role. And, you know, if he's to go, um, replacing a CEO doesn't happen in a couple of weeks. It takes months. Well, well, um, what if they, you know, there is a, a very experienced football executive at the club right now who we brought in from Barcelona, Raul Sanyehi, who yeah. was director of football at, at Barcelona at a big, huge club, and he is ostensibly director of football at Arsenal now. I mean, the, the, I think the lines between um, Ivan Gazidis's corporate uh, responsibilities and perhaps what he saw is his football responsibilities have become a bit blurred over the last little while mm. like you know is he responsible for the business side of things or the football side of things and it seems you know um, he, he wants to be all things to all men in, in a certain way so you know that might be an option in terms of replacing what Ivan Gazidis yeah. uh, does or uh, has done from the football side of things. Nevertheless, there is a there is another element to the club. There's the business element, and there are mm. commercial um, revenues and and all those things which he, as chief executive, should oversee. So maybe it's a case that we we'll, we if he goes, we might see a little bit of demarcation between those roles. That the, yeah. the football side is run absolutely by one guy, and the business side is run absolutely by by somebody else. Um, yeah. But what does and, it go on? Just go on before I ask. And you. I was just going to say, and, and but that, you know, for Sanye here and Miss Lintat, this, this would probably be quite unsettling in itself. Miss Lintat in particular, who came in last year, it, it must have been really awkward because everyone knew what was probably knew what was going on, that, you know, these guys had been brought in while Wenger's still there. And I can only imagine how awkward an atmosphere that was. That was, you know, that was very much, yeah, we're here because you're about to get sacked and we're just waiting for you to get sacked. Mm. And the other guy's like, yeah, you've been bought in because I'm going to get sacked, aren't you? You know, and yeah, yeah. And, and that's that's quite difficult. And th so those guys have had to wait this period out and now they've got the power. And then, you know, you lose the CEO um, who kind of ties it all together and then do you get more kind of positioning, more power play? Do these guys try and protect their territory? Do they try and, you know, does Sanyehi all of a sudden start to think, ah, here we go, maybe I could uh, extend my own role and my own responsibilities? And do, does that create a little bit of a lack of stability? I mean, I'm speculating here, maybe it yeah. doesn't. But, you know, these, these guys are new. They've come into brand new positions that haven't really been here before. So they're probably their roles and responsibilities at the moment are a bit elastic. Yeah. And, um, and should we say? So, yeah. yeah. I suppose Gazidis as well uh, has been the go-between between Kroenke and yeah. the other people at the club. Certainly he was the go-between... Um, you know, when, when Arsene Wenger was there, well, he was the man in the middle. I think Wenger had his own back channels to Stan Kroenke mm. or, or what have you. But, but you know, when it came to making decisions, he was, you know, chief executive of the football club. Do, does, it, does it worry you that um, this might be happening? Like, does it... Is it a yeah. case that you're wor worried that uh, Gazidis is going because he sees stuff going on at Arsenal and has decided, okay... I've done what I need to do here. I'm getting out while the going's good and while my stock is relatively high. Or does it say something to you, perhaps, about the character of, of Ivan Gazidis? You know, on which, of course, we can we can only really speculate. But um, I'm curious. It, 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 it possibly says. So I, I think first off, 
it's probably quite an attractive offer um, from Milan. It's, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's people he knows. And, you know, he's been at Arsenal for nine years now. Uh, that's quite long for a CEO. Um, and, you know, perhaps he's just thinking about moving on. He's been given an attractive offer. Um, you know, perhaps another club to reorganise and restructure a little bit in Milan. Um, if they've been promised some money from these new owners, then maybe he thinks, oh, if I could, you know, I've, I've, I've ousted like Arsene Wenger and put this new, um, this, you know, maybe he's like an organisational change kind of guy. And now, you know, there's this quite attractive um, offer from Milan. It might be more money um, if these people are friends of his that he knows. But yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it could suggest that, um, at some level of dissatisfaction because we kind of know, don't we, that he wanted Wenger to go before he actually went. Yeah. And he obviously kept losing um, that battle for quite a while. And it, it took a little while for Stan to kind of come around to the idea that, that Arsene should go. And maybe that was frustrating. And I, I think I think the other thing um, as well is kind of, you know, and again, maybe maybe working with Josh got frustrating for him a little bit. But also, you know, this this kind of new manager process. Now, you know, people, I'm, I can already feel my Twitter mentions <laughs> filling up with anger. But despite Ivan spinning these lovely little quotes about those who know, don't speak, blah, 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 bullshit, mm. bullshit, bullshit. We know he wanted Arteta as the manager. Well, we, we have a very firm idea of the fact that he wanted Mikel Arteta and that there was a change in the thinking. Um, now, obviously, we're completely speculating to say that, or I'm completely speculating to say that he was displeased with that. I don't know that. There's no real evidence for that. But, you know, may, maybe, maybe that's part of it as well. Maybe, yeah. you know, Ivan kind of got his big boy trousers on, he got rid of Wenger, and then he wanted this new guy and, you know, got overruled. Um but that's 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 nothing I know. That's just that's just complete speculation. But we 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 do know that we were pretty close to going with Arteta. So yes. you know maybe there's something in that. I don't know. But it it, it is a weird time for him to go. Yeah. Um, and it does suggest even if the Milan offer is very attractive, it it does suggest that Arsenal isn't that attractive to him anymore. Which mm. which in the long term could be a worry. Yeah. Well, look, it's a, it's a weird situation. I really do think it's it's bizarre that our preseason is being not dominated, but this thing is just hanging over <laughs> after all the changes. When we've done uh, yeah, and we've done everything else fairly efficiently yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of the squad, the manager, it's all been, you know, it's all been handled quite well. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. I mean, you, you you know, you've got to give him credit for that and for for overseeing that and you know, it goes back not just to this summer but to before, uh, you know, he he appointed Darren Burgess for example. It was mm. Gazidis who who appointed him and didn't need Wenger's say so to bring Darren Burgess in. So that was kind of the start of the I don't want to say the Ivan revolution or anything like that, but you know, he's, he's been at it for a little while. So yeah, it is, it yeah. is just a little bit strange. Anyway, um, we, we'll see what happens. I think there's a bit more to come from this story. Ivan mm. probably out in Singapore now on his, on his laptop on Google translate. What, what's the Italian for this is our tunnel area, uh, <laughs> but we'll see. Anyway, look Tim. we better leave it there. Thanks a million. Pleasure. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thank you very much indeed to Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto, at Stilberto, and read his column every Thursday over on arsblog.com. Now, for a little bit of this. Okay, joining me now on the Arsecast, I'm delighted to welcome the producer of a, I don't know quite how to describe it, sensational, intriguing, amazing new film called Kaiser. Um, he's an Arsenal fan as well, so it's good to talk to you. Tom Markham, hi, how are you? Hi, Andrew. Look, when people hear the word Kaiser and football, they think immediately, I suppose if they're of a certain generation, they'll think of Franz Beckenbauer. But this film is not about Franz Beckenbauer. I don't think it could be any further from Franz Beckenbauer if it tried. So tell us, who is Kaiser? So Kaiser is a Brazilian player. Uh, his, his real name is Carlos Enrique Raposo. But like all good Brazilian players, he, he only has one name. And it's funny because he'll tell you he got the Kaiser mantle from Beckenbauer and, you know, that majestic sort of effortless uh, playing style, whereas uh, a lot of his friends that he grew up with in Brazil will say that he actually got it from uh, a Kaiser beer bottle, which was a brand of, of beer in Brazil at the time. And, and it was a very stubby bottle. So because he was a bit portly, he was called this. But Kaiser is uh well was a brazilian footballer who uh, managed to blag a 26 year professional football career right well the the word blag there is interesting uh, the tagline of the movie is kaiser the greatest footballer never to play football and i i don't suppose this could happen nowadays it's just impossible for it to happen now and i'm not sure it could even have happened before that there was sort of like a uh, a build-up of events that was um, football was is obviously a huge passion in Brazil, but this was the 1980s. This was a time when footballers were seen as you know they had this amazing lifestyle and everything else, but there was no way of really going deep into who somebody actually was. So there was no Google. You couldn't Google somebody's name. You couldn't look at their picture. You couldn't look them up and see who they were. And all this has sort of come together to enable him to, as you say, blag a career at not just one club or two clubs, but right across 
Brazil and Europe, and we're talking about the biggest clubs in Brazil here, uh, Vasco, Flamengo, Botafogo, Fluminense, the, the, the clubs on Rio de Janeiro and beyond. So, I mean, give us a bit more about how he managed this. Yeah, well, it's it's a fascinating story because, as you said, it's the last sort of golden domestic era of, of Brazilian football where most of the top players were, were still in Brazil. So it, it was the most difficult place to make it as a professional footballer. But as you said, it was it was probably down to the culture in Brazil that a character like this was allowed to uh, unfold. And what happened with Kaiser, he was a playboy sort of man about town in Rio, was always in the, the best bars, nightclubs, restaurants, always had a string of girls on his arm. He was someone, he was extremely charismatic. He was someone that people liked to be around. And for that reason, he got to know a lot of the players from that era. And he'd use this, he effectively was a con man, but a lovable, a lovable rogue. And they have a character in Brazil, and it's called the Malandro. And there's almost, in particularly in, in, in Rio de Janeiro, there's more respect if you make it as a Malandro or a 171, which is the penal code for scams and fraud. So they're the two names for, for this type of character in Brazil. But there's almost more respect if you make it as one of them rather than working hard. But just to give you one example... Bebeto, obviously a uh, scorer of various goals in the in the 94 uh, World Cup winning team for Brazil and famous for his uh, his cradle uh, celebration. He, he was very good friends with Kaiser and he actually took Kaiser to Flamengo. And how this would unfold, he, he took him to Flamengo. Carlos Alberto Torres was the manager of Flamengo at the time. So obviously captain of the 1970 Brazil World Cup winning team. Mm. But he brought him there, and Kaiser was in unbelievable physical condition. So he was in actually better nick than most of the players. So you're talking about an era where preseason was based around fitness, yeah. and he was fitter than it, than any of the players. So automatically he has a good reference in someone like Bebeto. He worms his way in at the club, gets to know all the players. They all like him. He, he also worms his way in with, with directors, with any decision maker there and eventually signs a deal. But when it comes to playing, the guy, you know, you look at the Ali Dia example at Southampton. Ali Dia was a reasonable footballer. He played, you know, for Darlington. He played sort of at a lower level after his con at Southampton. But Kaiser actually couldn't play. The guy was terrible, but he managed <laughs> to sustain this. <laughs> It's it is amazing because the lengths that he goes to throughout the film to avoid playing uh, are incredible at times. And you know, Brazilian football uh, has got some interesting characters in it. People who own the clubs and people who are directors of the clubs. And uh, you know, I think there's one particular incident, isn't there, where the owner he loves Kaiser, he lo absolutely loves him, but he's always injured, and eventually he gets frustrated. And he wants to see him on the pitch um, to the point where Kaiser is sitting there with his head in his hands. You know, he's got the call to go on. He's got to go and warm up. And somehow he still manages to find a way not to play. Yeah. So the, the, the guy in question is, is a guy called Castor Diandrage. And in the 80s and 90s, he was effectively the biggest uh, mafia boss in Rio and in Brazil. And he... 
he owned a club called Bangu and Bangu were it was actually the first club where a football match was ever played in Brazil a Scottish guy uh, brought a football over there but that's a different story but Bangu in the early, uh, sorry, the mid 1980s, effectively did a Leicester City. They got to the, the to the final of the Brazilian League because there was actually a, almost a, a round robin style competition, and then there was a final. But they lost on penalties. But this guy's money that he was washing through the club had paid for lots of superstar players to come in. People like Marco Antonio, who played left back uh, in the 1970 World Cup winning team. So Kaiser was at the club there. And, and as you correctly said, he was told, well, it, there was a there was a situation with Castor. He actually had a direct phone line to the, to the manager of the club. So he was making all the decisions from the director's box. So Kaiser was on the bench and he he told the manager that Kaiser needed to go on. So Kaiser was very, very worried. So he started to warm up and then he was getting abuse from people in the crowd. They were slagging his hair. And obviously for anyone who sees this, Kaiser's hair is absolutely majestic. It's sort of, <laughs> you know, puffed out mullet, 80 style, you know, pat sharp. So it's, it's, it's something to behold, but he was getting abuse over his hair and he decided to jump over the fence into the into the supporters and started a fight with a fan. And he ended up getting sent off before he actually had to go on the pitch by the by the referee. And he thought that he was done for with, with Castor. He thought that that obviously the mafia boss was was just gonna was gonna kill him. And so he had to think very quickly on his feet in terms of what his excuse was going to be. And he, he basically turned around to Castor and said, I was defending your honour. Um, I heard people that were giving you abuse saying that you were, a, you were a mafia boss, that you were a villain. And I, you'd been like a father figure to me. And for that reason, I couldn't, I couldn't stand there and listen to this. So <laughs> he turned the whole thing around. And, and that's what he's amazing at doing, Andrew. I think none of this was strategic I think a lot of his reactions were very spontaneous and he just was an amazing actor uh, yeah, an amazing improviser as well I think you'd have to say because to to sort of carry out the same thing over and over again uh, at different clubs you know pretending to be injured not being able to not being able to play for this reason or that reason and always kind of living on the edge of being exposed it must be yeah. it must be quite difficult, you know. If that is the lifestyle you've chosen and you're good at that, and you've got the, as you say, the charisma and the personality to pull that off, then uh, you know, fair play. But you know, if you if you were to put yourself in those shoes, even for two minutes, it would be terrifying. Life existence must be just terrifying. Well, that's it, and I think it's almost a thrill seeker's um, existence because. You, you could be exposed at any point. And as you said, the characters that he was dealing with, you know, two of the clubs he played for, obviously we've spoken about Castor and Bangu, but he also played for uh, Botafogo that was owned by another mafia boss, Emil Panero. And like these guys in that era would have no problem bumping someone off. So mm. it, it, it literally was life or death situations, but he seemed to just revel in it. He took advantage of a likeness to a very famous Brazilian footballer and then manager, Renato Gaucho. Um, and, and that seemed to play a part in his ability to carry out these 
um, these scams. So getting himself into the nightclub, getting himself into the VIP area and saying, I'm Renato Gaucho. And the real Renato Gaucho turns up a little while later and says, you know, I'm here. I've been invited. I'm Renato Gaucho. And Kaiser has to escape through, through the toilets and stuff like that. It, it's, it's actually incredible. But there seems to be from, even from Renato Gaucho, a, a kind of grudging respect for it in a way and and also a real fondness for Kaiser himself because uh, despite the fact that Renato Gaucho's wife for example is getting phone calls from people going your husband's been with this girl and he's in, at that nightclub and he's going hang on a minute it's not me you know <laughs> there, there, there is this sort of friendship there between them well, they're actually best friends now, Andrew, which is the craziest part. And Renato Gaucho, he's he's a very, very interesting character. And he, he mightn't be a name that, that listeners have come across before. He had a brief stint at Roma uh, in, in 1989-90. But he got 40-odd caps for Brazil. And when you speak to the people in Brazil about this guy, they talk about him at the same level as even Neymar and, and Messi. So that, Bebeto said this. and But Renato, actually, he's the only person who won the Copa Libertadores, obviously the Champions League equivalent, as a player and as a coach. So he won it with Gremio last year and he won it, won it with Gremio as a player. But he was, an, he was an amazing footballer, but very, very good friend of Kaiser's and, and someone that he remains close to to this day. And that's something else that, that's actually, you know, really makes this story so interesting. There's so many facets to it, but it's the amount of people within the industry and the biggest names in Brazil and um, people like I mentioned Carlos Alberto Torres, mm. very, very close to Kaiser. He actually said that Kaiser had more influence in Rio society in the 80s or 90s than he did. <laughs> so he, he used to go to Kaiser to get things done. And this is part of the con, because if you think about it, obviously the, the injury charades is, is good. But towards the end of his career, all of the players knew what Kaiser was up to. At yeah. the start, they didn't necessarily, but they would—they were actually in on this because they wanted him around. So that they would come out in press conferences and say, you know, a little bit like Wenger did with Abu Dhabi, saying that this guy has all the potential in the world and that that he he he's the world at his feet. And they they were talking about wanting him in Brazil squads, etc. But they they were doing it for a laugh. And obviously, you know, that was the case with Abu Dhabi, unfortunately. But sure. um, that like that's that's the type of individual you're dealing with here. So he he had relationships with all of these players, and it was actually easier for journalists to come through Kaiser to get an interview with Romario or Edmundo or, you know, the biggest names in Brazilian football. And the journalists would then owe him favours. So he'd actually get them to write different things when he needed that in, in the newspapers. So he was he was very media savvy. Yeah, very, very good guy to have around. If you enjoy that particular footballer's lifestyle and all the trappings that come with that, then Kaiser, he was definitely, definitely the guy to have around. Um, it, it really is an astonishing story. I mean, how did you guys come across it? I know that towards um, a few years ago, he maybe started talking about it himself, having sat on it for, for a long time. But where did the where did the idea come from and, and how did you get involved? And, and was it difficult maybe to convince him to 
to open up in the way that he does open up in the film. Yeah, well, the, the story actually came from a very good friend of mine, and he he's the guy that I sit beside. We have season tickets together in, in the East Dance uh, at the Emirates. So a guy called Rob Fulham, and Rob is an oil broker who, who works in the city. And he was having a slow day, and effectively he came across this this story it was it was three paragraphs and they, they were effect they were snippets to be honest with you andrew that had been translated from portuguese and the story just looked ridiculous like when i when i read it he sent it on to me and it, I, I thought it was completely embellished and that was in in 2013 so we, we had a little chat about it and uh, we ended up going to the World Cup in 2014 and that's when this really came to life because we were out with with friends of friends who were obviously all Brazilian they all worked in the football industry over there and two nights in the bounce independently of, of each other this story came up as effectively the best football story in Brazil and we were asking all the obvious questions as to, well, how did he manage to sustain it and why did he do it and why was it accepted, etc. And they had reasonable answers on this. So we came back after that World Cup and just we were out in our local pub having a few pints and uh, it, it started off with somebody should make a movie about this and then after a few more pints it was, well, <laughs> we should make a movie about this. So, so we set about doing it. Brilliant. I mean, it, it's an absolutely fascinating story. I think people will will really enjoy it. It takes you through some ups and downs, I have to say, and uh, it's uh, really well put together. So congratulations. It's out in the UK and Ireland uh, from this weekend, so people can, can find it there. Is it going to be released worldwide? Is it going to be Netflixed or anything like that? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of different offers on the table. So we, we have anything from cinematic offers the reason why it's actually out in the uk and ireland this weekend well it's up from thursday so the 26th but most of the screenings are this sunday the 29th and you you can you can find details at um uh, at kaiser film on twitter is probably the best place because there's more screens been added the whole time but the story is so deep that Probably we did seven filming trips to Brazil in all, Andrew, and mm. we, we did 72 interviews. So we with nearly 230 hours worth of interviews. So the, the story was just incredibly deep, as I said. Yeah. So we, we, had a, we had a choice here. We either go down the route of doing an OJ style 10 hour plus piece yeah. which obviously wouldn't really work with this story and and obviously you know we, we felt that we wanted to go down the the 90 minute route which is what we've done but we didn't want to leave these amazing stories on the cutting room floor so we ended up um hiring rob Smythe, who writes from the for the guardian yeah, to sure. actually write the book and the book is out on the same day on the on the 26th it's it's branded in in the same way so so we figured it was best to to put everything out together and and that was the rationale for going with the uk and ireland first all right cool well look people can can find it and i think they would any football fan will will enjoy this we can all live vicariously through the life of uh, of kaiser um I was going to talk to you a little bit about uh, Arsenal. You're an Arsenal fan, as I said at the top of, of the, the interview, but you have a, a connection that stretches back quite a while to the club. Your great uncle played for Arsenal. 
He did, and and that's that's the main reason why I supported him. He drilled this into me uh, as a kid, and, and obviously I've, I've a lot to thank him for for that for that reason. But his name was Billy Duffy, and again, he 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 was from Dublin like myself, and he in 1947 he played for the Irish schoolboys against the England schoolboys and scored five goals uh, for Ireland in that game. And there was a lot of scouts from from lot from a variety of, of UK clubs there, and and he ended up signing for Arsenal, got into the first team squad fairly quickly, was obviously a striker, um, scored a few goals in his debut season, so he, he was only eighteen, and it it was the start of the 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 49-50 season, which Arsenal actually won the FA Cup. He contracted TB, and oh. the club. Were, were amazing to him. They uh, they paid for all of his medical care. He actually had had to have part of his lung removed. They sent him to live live in Switzerland because the air was so clean, and they felt that that would aid his recovery. And ultimately, he moved back to Dublin, and they paid for him to go to university. And he was the first one on that side of the family to go to university. And he always talked about how classy the club were and, and how well he was treated there. And like even they sent him over uh, after the FA Cup final. They sent him over uh, signed programs and everything from, from that era. So um, they were very, very good. And he sadly passed away in, in 2013, but they invited the whole family. So there was about 20... 24 of the family uh, over for uh, a home game against West Brom and they did we met um, Ken Fryer and uh, they did an announcement at half time about him passing away and there was a round of applause at, at the Emirates so I know the rest of the family obviously you know I'm, I'm there every other week but they, they really really you know, it was a heartfelt gesture from their perspective and they, they really, really appreciated it from the club. Yeah, sure. I mean, sometimes, you know, people do talk about the, the little touches of class that Arsenal have and they're not there all the time. But when you hear stories like that, you know that there's something a, a bit special about the club and the way that it it, it does look after people. So how are, you, um, how are you feeling about this summer and the new season? Are you looking forward to, to things being different? Definitely. I think, you know, I, I was one of the, the people that was of the opinion that it needed freshening up. Sure. Um, we, we, were, we were seeing the same thing all the time. And, and there was obviously there was only one catalyst. So I, I think it's great that that Emre has come come in. Um, I was actually speaking. I, I was over in Russia for the World Cup and I was speaking to uh, a friend of mine, Paul Erickson, who, who was working on that. who's another Arsenal fan. And He'd been dealing with the with the Spanish team over there, and they they were really really the, the press officer for Spain was saying, you know, it's an amazing appointment that his attention to detail is just second to none. So, I think that's great. I, I think a lot of the signings that have come in, it's it's good to see uh, Torreira in, in particular. He looks like, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a, a bulldog and and ready to get stuck in. So I think we've needed that for a while, yeah. and you know, it's nice to to sign some nasty looking center halves because I think we've been we've been too nice in that department for for too long so let's see it's always difficult trying to trying to put a, a, a relatively new team together with, with with that many new faces but 
the fact that so many of the other clubs have been impacted by players playing for so long at the World Cup I think is going to be to Arsenal's advantage you look at the Spurs situation the fact that they had so many players that went so deep into the into the tournament and ultimately weren't most of them weren't successful apart from Lloris but the, the fact that they've got all their away games at the start of the season as well I, I'm, I'm, I've got high hopes I'm, I'm hoping that we can uh, we can at least you know compete for a, a Champions League spot again yeah yeah fingers crossed that's uh, I think I'd be happy with that with uh, with his first season uh, I think it'll be a good achievement and uh, hopefully uh, Spurs will have a, a particularly terrible time post-World <laughs> Cup and with their new stadium <laughs> and everything else but listen Tom it's been great to talk to you thanks a million best of luck uh, with the film it's absolutely fantastic and I wish you a great deal of success thanks Andrew uh, I'm sure you've seen plenty of uh, coverage of this film Kaiser I watched it during the week it really is it really is well worth a watch, whether you're a football fan or not. It's an astonishing story, and uh, it takes you places you don't think you're going to go. When you start the film, you end up somewhere a little bit different. I'm not going to spoil anything or give anything away, but it's uh, it's well worth a watch. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Hope you enjoyed the podcast as well. Thank you, as ever, for listening. I really do appreciate it. James and I will be here on Monday. We'll have an Arscast Extra following our game against PSG in Singapore. We might learn a little bit more about the team, about everything else, and who knows where we might be with all the other stuff that's going on. So uh, we'll be around for that on Monday. Until then, have yourselves a great weekend. I'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Um, um, this is our tunnel area. Tunnel area. Tunnel area. Questa è la nostra area del tunnel. Questa è la nostra area del tunnel. Area del tunnel. Area del tunnel. This is our tunnel area. Tunnel area. So this is our tunnel area, 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 tunnel area. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.